This is Hearts of Oak Podcast. Free speech, religious disagreement, children's rights, and open and free discussion on any topic are bedrock to a democratic free society. And we seek to promote and champion these basic rights. Join us. Let's keep the conversation going. Senator Malcolm Roberts, it is wonderful to have you with us today. Thank you for your time. No, you're, you're welcome, and thank you very much for the invitation, Peter. Not at all. We've had lots of uh, US, European, UK politicians, so uh, we haven't had one from Down Under, so it's great to have you with us, giving us a little bit of an insight into what's happening in your part of the world. People can obviously find you at, there is your handle on Twitter, and they can also find your website, which is there, uh, Malcolm Roberts QLD. Dot com dot au. Uh, it is all there on your Twitter feed. Um, Senator Roberts, you, Senator Queensland with Pauline Hanson's One Nation Party, uh, and we have certainly watched uh, what Pauline has done there as a voice of reason in Australia. You've been there since, uh, well, really since 2019. But if we could go back a little bit, your background is not politics. It's coal mining. Uh, do you want to just touch on that? Because often we see career politicians and your story is quite different. Right. My roots go back to um, Wales and the, the valleys around Wales, uh, the town of Bedlinog. And uh, my grandfather was a coal miner and my father uh, followed him into the mines. And at a young age, he got a scholarship to a grammar school, I think it was called. And um, he did very well, and he became a mine manager at a very early age. And then he, uh, at, to a credit, uh, as a credit to him, at the age of 23, the British coal mines were nationalised, and he knew at the age of 23 that that meant they would be ruined. And so he left and went to India, which took a lot of courage, um, and he, he's, he helped set up mines there. He helped manage mines. Um, and then he started selling equipment over there for a very large British company at the time. Then he moved to Australia. So I was I, I grew up on on mine sites, and I used to go underground with him, with Dad sometimes. Uh, and I just loved the environment, loved the atmosphere. And so I studied mining engineering and and graduated with a, a bachelor of mining engineering uh, honors degree. And then I decided, Peter, I'd better go and learn something. So I worked as a coal-faced miner for a few years, uh, uh, different mines around the country, because mining is unlike most other engineering fields. What, what we're dealing with as an engineer is constantly varying, and, it, and the, the different approaches to different conditions varies enormously across, across the sector. And the other thing that's very important in the underground mining sector is the importance of people. Well, it's important in, in everything, but particularly important in, in coal mining because work is very small teams, remote from each other, sometimes kilometres away. And, of course, lives depend upon us doing our jobs properly. So I love the underground coal mining, and that, that's, where I came, that's where I got my experience. Um, and then I, I worked then briefly – Sorry, after I left, uh, after I finished working three years as a coal-faced miner, I went overseas to America and worked for two very large companies. And uh, and then uh, I came back to Australia, got into management, uh, so, sorry, got into engineering. I never really wanted to be an engineer. Uh, I liked the logic of it, but, and, and, but I, I liked working with people. So it was a short 
cut for me to get into management and I moved rapidly through the management ranks and was appointed a mine manager. And then after getting tired of the bean counters telling us what to do, I went to the University of Chicago and uh, Graduate School of Business and did a, it's now called the, um, oh, I've forgotten what it's called now, but it's it's uh, got a new name. Uh, and then I came, I was offered a job in the States uh, and then a large international company headhunter me back to Australia to set up a large new underground coal mine where we did a lot of things new uh, in the way of leadership and um, that was a lot of fun and then I formed my own consulting business and I worked overseas uh, and Australia and uh, I came back from 12 months overseas with my family in New Zealand and I heard all this rubbish about um, carbon dioxide uh, causing global climate change you know and I thought this this? is rubbish. When was this? Sorry? When was this? What year? 2005. 2005. Okay. When I when I got back, it was early 2006, and uh, and I thought this is complete crap, and uh, so I did the research because I won't won't speak up without knowing the facts, and um, and it was crap, and it is crap, and so I then started holding account uh, politicians accountable, journalists accountable, academics accountable, uh, frauds accountable. And uh, um, Pauline Hansen heard me speak uh, one day and she said, I want you to sit on, join, sit on the ticket with me for getting into the Senate. So that's what happened and I, and I got in. Tell us because um, obviously being a, a climate change denier, that's one of the worst sins. Uh, COVID actually is now one of the worst sins, denying that. I'm both. But, I'm both. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. Um, but how does that, because in Australia, you've got a big mining industry. Um, we've seen the US shoot itself in the foot massively by pushing towards net zero. We've seen the UK shutting down their oil fields out in the North Sea. Um, how does it kind of work for Australia and the public? Because that's an industry that employs a lot of people and yet it's it's punishing yourselves, punishing your own citizens. Well, it's insane, Peter. It is absolutely insane because um, China produces 4.5 billion tonnes of coal a year, every year, and it's heading for 5 billion. That is, you know, when 20 years ago uh, it was around about 1 billion, under 1 billion, and then it rapidly moved to 3, and I got caught out by when I was working with a client in India and he said, no, mate, it's it's up around four. So 4.5 now billion, and they're heading for five, and they're importing our coal. They want more of this stuff because they've got to get uh, steel to make wind turbines to sell to us and to sell to you, you know, and they've got to get um, coal for making solar panels to sell to us and to sell to you. And they don't put many of them up because they recognise that coal is the is high energy density, and that's what gives it its remarkable remarkable efficiency and its its cheapness of electricity. Australia once had the cheapest electricity in the world when we used largely coal, and now we're one of the most expensive, and we've got the the highest level of per capita subsidies in the world for solar and wind, and so we are destroying our industry. And and get a load of this, we. We flew over the Gladstone, uh, the port of Gladstone, which is a major port in, in our state of Queensland, and there, we, there I could see off the po- off the port, I could see thirty eight coal ships ready to be loaded. You know, this thing that's going to be stopped mining. It's, it's complete rubbish. Everyone's wanting our coal, and and so there we then we flew over the port itself, and there was a coal ship, an overseas vessel, loading coal from Australia to take overseas, probably to China. And there were wind turbine blades stacked up on the wharf 
importing. What we're doing is we're subsidizing the Chinese to make these things. We're subsidizing the Chinese and other foreign companies to install them. Then we're subsidizing to, to run them because they're so inefficient they can't work without subsidies. So we are raising the cost of our electricity, which is now the number one cost component in a manufacturing. So we're destroying our manufacturing sector, exporting our manufacturing jobs to China, exporting our coal to China, but we can't burn it in Australia. I mean, it is insane. And, and you know, they're, they're so destructive to the environment as well. So we are killing our industry, killing our future, killing our security, killing our human environment and killing our environmental env environment. Mm. It's just nuts what's going on. What is that? How did you actually get in to the politics? You talked about Pauline seeing you. Uh, politics can be brutal. Um, on one side, you can have the recognition, uh, that level of fame. On the other side, I know the media can be absolutely brutal. Um, you're not a career politician. What kind of persuaded you to leave an industry you kind of knew so well to actually enter into the public sphere of politics? Well, my dad was from Wales. My mother was um, from North Queensland in the tropics. Uh, and they both value honest, valued honesty very, very highly, and that was ingrained in me. And I just couldn't turn my back on it. So what I started to do when I first realised it was a scam, this climate change rubbish, I started to write to politicians and journalists and held them accountable. Um, and and I, I just couldn't help myself. But I had to get the data first and do the research. So I did a lot of research, a lot of reading, contacted the most eminent scientists around the world on climate and I realized that, that it was complete crap. So, uh, so that wouldn't stop me then. You know, it, it didn't matter. That was far more important because I could see where this was going. The, the number one protector of the environment, the whale's best friend, the forest's best friend is coal. Because back in, in your country in the 1850s, people were, were burning whale oil for lighting. Yeah. Now burning timber for cooking and for heating. And coal came along and changed all of that. And then we didn't have to hunt whales. We didn't have to cut down timber. And we've now got whales back in, in growing numbers. They're no longer threatened uh, for, with extinction. And we've got now, I think, in the developed continents, the figure I saw was 30% 30, 30 more area in forests than 100 years ago. Why is that? Due to coal. Coal's also been a huge uh, benefit to humanity, our lives along. You know, I can summarize it this way. A, a king or queen 200 years ago did not live as well as someone on welfare in our country today because of, because of the high density efficient, energy efficiency of coal, oil, and natural gas, and now nuclear. You know, so that, that's, that's the stumbling block for, coal, for um, wind and solar. They're just so low in energy density. And, and Peter, we have spent the last 170 years getting away from being dependent on nature for so much. And we finally made it so that we're almost independent. What do they want to do? Take us back to being dependent on, on the sun and the wind and the vagaries of nature. It's just insane. Tell us about Australian politics. Uh, obviously in the One Nation Party, uh, you're one of two, Pauline being the other, a uh, senator in the Senate there, 76 in the Senate. Um, uh, tell us about what it's been like during that time because COVID tyranny obviously hit soon after you were elected, within a year, year and a half. Um, how have you managed to be kind of the voice of reason and how has that gone down in the country? 
uh, initially it didn't go down too well at all, you know. But but as I said, we can't back away from it, and uh, and and so if it if if I've got the facts that show a certain position is correct, then I will speak it. It doesn't matter what it is. There's only been one or two things that I've delayed, and not on COVID. That that was always um, that was always an urgent thing to get out. But on a couple of other issues, I've I've delayed to have better timing because we can get get savaged. So, uh, but but those things are out, uh, you know, out in the open now. Those things are out in the open too. So it's really simple for me to just tell the truth, and I don't give a damn what people think. And and the Greens, who are the the most inhuman party there is, uh, anti-human party, uh, they're, they're disgraceful what they do, what they're doing to children, families, uh, humanity itself, and to the environment. Their policies are really hurting the environment. The Greens would yell at me and carry on and insult me and interject, but I have never, apart from once, taken an interjection. I just talk my way through it, just keep going. So they know that they won't upset me. And so in the early days, you know, the climate denial business, the um, the COVID denial business, um, that didn't stop me and it didn't stop, it never stops Pauline. Um, they use an even worse tactic with Pauline. They call her racist. But that doesn't, you know, she 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 comes back at them now and just says, criticism is not racism. So she stands up. So for me, it was a matter of just telling the truth, having a really strong woman beside me uh, and me being strong beside her, uh, having the facts to back us up, knowing that they're wrong and that I've got a duty to protect people's lives. My first speech in the Senate and every speech that, that I have over about two minutes, I start with the words, as a servant to the people of Queensland and Australia. When I first uttered those words in my first speech, members of the Labor Party laughed, you know, but that's our job. So I take that very, very seriously. So it doesn't bother me uh, being slagged by the media. What is more difficult is that the media won't come near me now because I've embarrassed a few of them because I have the facts at hand and and they won't touch me. Uh, I know that even Sky News, which is the only semi-conservative channel in this country, um, my name is on a list of uh, politicians banned from Sky News because I was calling them vaccine shields, basically, mm. um, and and pointing out their errors in, in what they were doing. We've had the same thing here. Uh, all the media on the right have <laughs> have done that and taken the money for pushing the jab. Uh, in the UK, I remember my many years in UKIP, uh, where we fought for Brexit, it was a single issue party. And therefore, we had kind of the support of the media, because they were happy to push a single issue, which wasn't a wider threat necessarily against the establishment parties, but it ended up being a threat. Um, it's oh, threat, it came to reality. I know. <laughs> you guys did really well. Brexit, I know. Led to Brexit, that was wonderful for the whole world. We just wish others, actually, the the wish is that we actually had politicians who knew how to drive this new uh, thing that they have. They've been given a vehicle, they've been given freedom to do whatever they want, and our British politicians are looking at each other, scratching their heads, thinking, what do we do with this thing? That's the frustrating thing. (laughs) If only we had politicians who knew what they were doing with it. But over there, One Nation is a, is a, a party that has policies on everything and i've watched the attacks of um populists to use the term i guess across europe parties that care about the national interest and put that before the the wider interest um and they've all suffered hugely um 
tell us what that has been like for One Nation. What have been the kind of attacks you've had from the media? Well, as I said, Pauline has been called racist, which is the worst thing you can call an Australian woman. Uh, It's very hard to get around that. But she is remarkable. She just does not worry about it. If the truth is there, she goes for it. Um, and and uh, and as I said, now she comes back and says uh, criticism is not racism. And she's people know, you know, the first um, first couple of days after I was announced as successful in 2016, my first stint in the Senate, I was approaching our head office and in Brisbane, and uh, three black people from the Northern Territory came to me, and Aboriginals, and they said, "Where's Pauline's office?" And I said, "Follow me." just walk in and they said they were from the northern territory which has got a large proportion of of aboriginals and and um and they said they'd come down to pauline because she's the only one who understood them and the only one who's willing to get off her ass and do something about them wow you know so so we pauline has never uttered a racist word but she has called out racism and for that she's been labeled a racist so um it's just a matter of just being strong in ourselves, because it doesn't matter what we get called on on the media. It doesn't matter what we get called in Parliament. And now, it, it's very interesting because when we first started talking about the reality of the COVID mismanagement and deceit, Peter, we were getting called out. But now, starting in about February, uh, another senator walked up to me and said, "Did you see what happened when you asked your question about the injections?" There, and I said, "No, I was too busy focusing on on the question and the answer." And and he said, "Well." The Labor Party, who's now in government at that time in February, they um, they did their usual uh, cat calls and jeers about, uh, as soon as I mentioned, mentioned injection, I don't call them vaccines normally. Yeah. I just call them injections because they're not vaccines. They're an experimental gene therapy-based treatment. Hmm. Um, and, and he said, after they got over the initial slagging of you, um, their heads dropped and they were silent the rest of the time. And now what we're finding is, Everyone, all the major parties are now endorsing our call for a, a royal commission into the mismanagement of COVID. And um, but they're just saying, two of them are just saying, not yet, after the states have finished their inquiries. And, and so we're getting a big change. The big issue that, that confronts us now is that we still haven't got recognition of the excess deaths. We've got deaths, 40,000 excess deaths above normal, 40,000. That's, that's more than two Boeing... 787 Dreamliners crashing each week, and no one's interested. No one in the government. I mean, if one Boeing crashed uh, and and everyone was killed on board, there'd be an inquiry starting straight away. But now we've got two a week on average, uh, and for a year, and no one's no one's really interested because they are interested, but they're scared of digging into it. So now we can start seeing people are starting to talk about it in in the communities. Um, some of the some of the ministers are starting to get defensive about it because they you know the one of the, the most important thing i think in this country is we've ceded our sovereignty to the un policies to world economic forum policies and probably an even more important thing is the fact that our politicians don't use data you know as a business person i was trained to use data that's what i did at the university of chicago i learned in most statistically uh, sound college in in the world probably, uh, known for its, its hard use of statistics, and uh, they don't use data. They just use bullshit basically, uh, yeah. make up whatever they want, 
and we come along with data and a lot of the issues are coming to us now because we just got the data to start with and we knew it would eventually work. Well, we have one single MP, that's Andrew Bridgen, and he is simply on the side of, of vaccine harm. He actually is, is further to go, I think, uh, to getting it, but simply on vaccine harm. Um, do, what is, is that not even being discussed there? Are there politicians who are willing, but privately? Um, obviously, Andrew Bridgen was kicked out of the Conservative Party. Um, is it putting career first before country? Well, my hat's off to uh, hat off to Andrew Bridgen, and I've had a talk with him. He seems a very down to earth sort of person, no no nonsense. Um, so I admire him enormously. Um, in the Labor, we we have two parties: the, your equivalent of Tories, who we call Liberals, uh, and National Party, and your equivalent of Labor Party, who we call Labor Party, without without the U in it. Mm. Uh, we have got the American spelling for some reason. Uh, I don't know I don't know why, but. Um, They've both been reluctant to talk about it and the policies right across the whole, the mainstream of, of politics, they're almost identical. They're not an opposition. They pretend to be op opponents, but they're not, they're not really. Um, however, there is one enormous difference between the Liberal Party and the Nationals and the Labor Party. The Labor Party, if someone has a different view, they don't dare raise it. They don't raise anything contradicts their, their Labor Party hierarchy. In the Liberal Party, most of them, most of the time, are reluctant to speak up or to cross the floor to vote against their party, but there are a few who will, just a few, and, and so no more than three or four depending on the issue, uh, and it's very, very rare, but they still do it. That's the only difference between the two parties. So it's that ruthless party discipline. It's, it's called discipline. I call it cowardice, um, and it's also I call it, um, betrayal of the people because they were elected to represent the people, not to put the party first. And so we're, we're, we're starting to see some people in the Liberal Party opening up and talking about the deaths um, very strongly too. Um, but no one in the Labor Party, no one. And the Greens, the Greens used to be opponents of Big Pharma. The Greens now are Big Pharma's little play toys and, and foot soldiers. The Greens are just hideous. Oh, I've, I've seen that. But again, I guess when you look, you thought having Scott Morrison, you thought someone who kind of, when I look at that, conservative Labour, so we, uh, the Liberal Party maybe being on the right traditionally at some point, <laughs> um, maybe not now, but you kind of thought, well, he may have actually stood up for something, but he was one of the biggest proponents for the tyranny. I mean, we in the UK looked down at you guys and and really worried were concerned i talked to australian friends and it was heartbreaking uh, that limitation of even travel across state lines um people were being punished uh, i mean and then now he's out but he presided over that for uh, for four years um tell us more about that situation because it was so, an apocalyptic situation that you'd see from some dystopian movie Oh, yes. You know, to give you one, Morrison lied. He was a notorious liar, um, control freak. He seemed to change dramatically under COVID uh, and so many other things in, in other areas. Climate, he, he became a, a climate alarmist. But under COVID, um, the federal government cannot issue mandates for injections, but it did. So Morrison 
issued mandates for um, the Department of Defence, the Australian Electoral Commission, Aged Care, um, and and several other several other agencies. He he's the one who bought the injections from Pfizer and Moderna and AstraZeneca initially. He's the one who bought them with federal money, taxpayer money, gave them to the states. He indemnified the states. He shared data with the Fed, from the federal health department with the states, which if he hadn't shared that, they, there's no way the states could have put the mandates on. So uh, what was the other thing he did? Oh, that's right. The, um, the state premiers who, who put the mandates on in their own states, they injection mandates, forcing people to, to uh, get injections or lose their jobs, um, that they, uh, they said that the decision to inject people through the mandates was done at National Cabinet. Now, National Cabinet was a furphy. It was created by Morrison. It's, it's not constitutional. Um, it's a very closed shop. They don't release anything to the public scrutiny. And, and National Cabinet is a bogus entity. And Morrison headed the National Cabinet. There was, there was one other thing. He bought the injections. Oh, that's right. He provided them with lots of cash to indemnify them if anything happened. So there's no way the states could have done any injection mandates except for Morrison enabling it to happen. And then Morrison, every day for two weeks early on, said there are no injection mandates in this country. He was driving it and he, and he knew it was on. He had to know it was on. And there are so many things that Morrison did. And Greg Hunt, you know, Greg Hunt, the, the federal health minister, said, the world is engaged in the largest clinical vaccination trial. You do not mandate trial trial drugs. That didn't even I could go on, you're probably aware of it. But we we just could not believe what was going on. And and so we just called it out. But the 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 press was enthralled, and I think their their allegiance is to Big Pharma. The public were absolutely terrified. We recently exposed the fact that this goes back to 2008, 2009 with APRA, uh, our Australian Health Prudential Regulatory Agency, um, which is which has been belting doctors, threatening doctors, suppressing doctors, bullying doctors, intimidating doctors, so that they wouldn't report um, incidences of vaccine deaths and injuries. Um, and we've also found out that the Medical Countermeasures Consortium was the British government, Department of Defence and Health, and the British government, the American government, the Canadian government, the Australian government, that's what drove the the injections, the development of the injections, as well as the implementation of the injecting. Uh, and so it was. So you know, we've been calling this out, and bit by bit, things are coming out. So we're we're we'll push every week. We give an update on this. Well, tell us about that because here in the UK, we've had a COVID inquiry, uh, which probably could be better summed up as a COVID whitewash. Um, it's simply going through the motions. No one really wanted it. Uh, we don't have a party in parliament is actually pushing it uh, like you have there with One Nation. Um, and the media are slowly beginning to change their tune slightly, um, although you can go back to the articles and prove they were uh, forcing the COVID jab on everyone, but now they're pulling back from that. What is it like in Australia with politicians maybe slowly waking up, changing their tune, and with the media? Is there a, a slow change happening? There is a slow change happening in both politics and in the media, Peter. Um, 
we've had some fairly strong journalists, but they've been throttled by News Corp, uh, Rupert Murdoch's outfit. Yeah. But but they're, un, they're they're at least a little glimmer. They were a little glimmer all the way through. They have little little articles about the masks being ineffective and questioning things. They weren't really coming down um, strongly against certain things, but they were questioning. The ABC and the and the other commercial media, Channel Nine, Channel Seven on the on the and Channel Zero, Channel Ten on on the commercial TVs, the radio stations, they were horrific. There were people who would call in on talkback radio stations uh, to Two GB, and um, and g- give an alternative view from the mainstream, and they would just be smashed by the announcer. Um, so that that was definitely very strong in the media. They were all they were all bought. They were all uh, paid for advertising the, the injections. They were all part of the hype, which which indoctrinated people. Um, but as, as the injections started getting worse in, in terms of their effect, people were starting to wake up. And now we've got um, a couple of News Corp journalists from Rupert Murdoch's stable who are doing a good job. Adam Crichton, I single out. Um, he has done a marvellous job. I don't know if you're aware of him. He's he's a young, fairly young economist, uh, very good writer, factually correct all the time. He's their Washington correspondent, Adam Crichton, C-R-E-I-C-H-T-O-N, I think, or G-H-T-O-N. Uh, he, he's very, very good. Um, and, of course, we've had a lot of people spring up as what I call independent, truth-seeking, truth-spreading, freedom uh, freedom uh, people's media. And and the the podcasters and and Avi Yemeni, you you know him, um, Rakshan and others uh, following in the in the footsteps of Ezra Levant and so on from Canada, they're doing a really good job. And now, now people uh, do not believe the mainstream media as if they ever did, but now they definitely don't believe it. Uh, they question everything, and and that's been a wonderful silver lining to the dark clouds of COVID because. Well, no, not COVID. The dark clouds to the silver line, the silver lining to the dark clouds of COVID mismanagement. COVID was yeah. virtually nothing, yeah. really, um, and and it was the mismanagement and the fear and the intimidation. And the wonderful benefit of of that, the side effect of it, has been people are waking up and they're questioning things and they're saying, "Hang on a minute, that COVID, that was a lot of crap in that." They're using the same tactics in climate as they used in COVID. I think the climate, the climate change might be crap too. And of course, we know it is. So it has been a wonderful awakening, but still we've only got where we used to have five people awake, we, 5%, we've probably only got about 15% now. So we're, we're badly needing to get to 30%. It's growing, but uh, not quickly enough. I, we had Avi on six weeks ago um, for the second time, and I love watching Avi. He has a, a firecracker. Um, and I know Ezra, I've met Ezra many times, and I love what he does with Rebel. Um, uh, without actually probably setting Rebel Australia up, uh, you wouldn't have that. And I think Avi is absolutely essential. No fear. Um, how does it, with the One Nation Party, how do you put yourself forward? Because the last three years, I guess any individual or party or media outlet that sees themselves on the side of freedom uh, have had to understand what's happening understand that actually the government don't want the best for us uh, and that relationship i think has changed i think in the west we've had a general understanding that government actually 
want the best for people. I mean, talk to people in an ex-communist country and it's, it'd be very different understanding. So how do you, one nation go out and engage with the public, put yourself forward? We we go out into the regions and into the communities a lot more than the other parties. And I think that it's easier for us, Peter, because we can actually go and listen. The others have to pretend to listen because they've already got their minds made up. They're not following instructions. So we can be frank and, and open with people. Um, and Pauline and I have, have uh, uh, a reputation for being honest with people. And if someone asks us a question and or criticizes us on their policy, we'll listen to them. Uh, and we'll do the facts. The other thing is we use facts and hard data to back up our policies, but we get a lot of our ideas from the people. So we, we're, we're in touch and we are able to listen and, and show that we listen. So that's, that's what we do. Um, I know that um, I was, I've met Nigel Farage a couple of times just briefly. He said that he didn't get much media. And that, actually someone told me that's not correct He was because you actually got a lot of media because of your, your – uh, your stances, but they didn't come looking to you. I think looking for you was what Nigel meant. That you weren't readily accessible, but because your policies were so strong at the time, they actually did report them a lot. But he, he told me that you didn't have um, a lot of social media back in the, in the early days. Not not Brexit, but uh, UKIP, uh, and and um, and so it was basically going from one community to another, and just just having town hall meetings and getting the word out like that. And and that's remarkable. And we we I recently did two months uh, or six weeks in in the uh, regions of our state, um, just setting up forums and evenings in in pubs, and uh, so it works. Um, we only get, you know, uh, I guess we 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 get more than the the mainstream parties actually uh, to turning up, but we might only get a hundred or so people, um, and 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 that that. We know that they talk to other people and they like the fact, people love the fact that we just call it as it is. And and they some of them say, Look, I don't really agree with you, but I like what you're doing. So, you know, so we we we've we use social media, we're very strong on social media. We have the highest engagement of any any um, pages in the country, Pauline and I, generally. Uh, we're rarely beaten in terms of engagement. Um, and our reach is pretty strong. Um as James Ashby in our party said, he's, he's, he was uh, the first one to introduce our party to social media. He said, our reach is sometimes far better than the highest circulation paper in the country or how, and far higher than, than Sky News um, broadcast reach. So, um, and we've got, we've got good equipment for doing live, live stream and also live crosses to some of the cha- TV channels. But they, they haven't even got our equipment. So, you know, but we, we make a, a – we make – we make a, a very important stand in just being honest, data-driven, factual, and telling it like it is. And uh, as Pauline says, her slogan is, um, I've got the guts to say what you're thinking, and, and that's <laughs> correct. And people know that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they, they like that honesty. And you mentioned, I mean, Nigel, for 25 years uh, through UKIP, it was those town hall meetings. It was those in one-to-one encounters and in the world before social media. But I think today, few people realize 
the work that is involved on building something up from a, a grassroots. They expect a tweet to change things overnight. Um, and what you're describing those town hall meetings, that's what it's all about, isn't it? About meeting the public face-to-face and engage with them and understanding those local concerns, which is something that the major parties just don't do. That's correct. As I said, I don't think they can do it because they can't afford to do it because uh, they, they have to go through the motions of pretending to listen, Peter. They can't listen because to listen, you have to then do something about it and you take it back. And they know they can't. You know, they're... Their best um, senator, uh, without a doubt, their best senator. Well, no, that's not true. There's another one in South Australia who's very effective. Um, certainly one of their, their top senators has just lost pre-selection. He won't be pre-selected for the next election because because he's too damn good. He doesn't count out of the party line, you know. He's, he's more in our mould. So um, they're, they're just afraid. And, and the Labor Party, people know that the party their party hacks and they're just they just um, they're controlled by the party machine in the Labor Party and to to some extent in the Liberal Party. So people don't trust politicians. It's it just and yet that's what stuns me. People don't trust politicians and rightly so, but they they run to politicians, and because the the you know it must be because we're we're all descended from most of us descended from convicts because we run to authority. I guess we need a few more Irishmen over here. <laughs> Can can I ask you um, how you kind of build on uh, what you have uh, going forward? Um, w- when I look at the UK, we were under the control of the EU. Uh, as I said, we've got out, but don't know what to do with that freedom. Um, what is it like for Australia and Australians? Uh, you're far away from many things. You're not under that same kind of economic power base that we had under the EU, does that mean you're freer to make decisions? How does that kind of fit into that national sovereignty issue? In our early years, uh, we were captive of the British. There's no doubt about that. The British used us to provide food, to provide raw materials and a market for for their products. You know, not a big market, but but, but nonetheless a substantial, a sizable market. Um, that's been taken over by the Americans because the Americans um, supposedly defend us. Now, I question whether they will or not if, if push comes to shove and we get into a war um, because Britain gave us a lot in terms of our, uh, our parliamentary representative system, our systems of government. The British, the British gave us enormous benefits, yeah. but the British only looking after the British. And, and that's the same with everyone. And the Americans are looking after the American, uh, looking after um, America when they when they come to managing us. Where we we recently, I recently read a book by uh, Clinton Fernandez, which for anyone interested in Australia, he called it sub-imperial power. The title is sub-imperial power, and he points out that our manufacturing has been suppressed in this country because they don't want us to be a manufacturer. They want us to stay dependent. We've got wonderful resources. We'll be a quarry. Thank you very much. And uh, and the Americans control what we do. And we have become their little foot soldiers, a sub-imperial power in uh, in Timor uh, and in certain areas of the, of the Pacific. And so we do what the Yanks tell us. Uh, and, you know, Peter, I've, I've got a huge admiration for America. I, I've worked over there for five, three to five years. Uh, sorry. Worked and um, and studied over there. Went to one of their best universities. 
uh, I then travel for 15 months. I've been through all 50 states of the United States, and I absolutely admire and love Americans. I detest their government. Yeah. Their government has become a globalist dictatorship. It's the number one form of terrorist. It's a, it's the world's worst terrorist organization. Yeah. They've killed so many people, destroyed so many governments. Um, so it's the American government that I've got issues with, apart from Trump. He seemed to be a breath of fresh air. But uh, the American government on both Republican and particularly Democrat sides are just tools of the globalist predators. We know that now. Um, so that's that's our biggest problem is that I think that we're still if, – if the Americans um, want to dethrone someone in another regime, we seem to follow them into the war, just gullible. You know, our – our foreign minister at the time of 9-11, uh, Alexander Downer, retired a few years later and he said when John Howard, our prime minister at the time, came back from the United States and he was there when, uh, when the Twin Towers came down, he walked into cabinet when he got back and said, well, we're off to Iraq. No, 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 no conversation, no, it was just we're off to Iraq. And I wonder where he got his orders from. They're the kinds of things we, we've got the guts to ask, but we have to ask it because we're just pawns of the United States. Yeah. Um, um, and I love the Yanks. They're, I'm married to one, by the way, and I've got two children who are dual citizens, so don't accuse me of being an American hater, and I'm such an admirer of the United States. I think I've been over there seven times in the last 18 months, so I share your uh, your love of the U.S., um, just, just to I'm finish very what, worried, though. It might be it, – it's declining very quickly. Oh, it is. It is. Terrible. Um, and I talk to a lot of my U.S. friends, and it is concerning, heartbreaking uh, to see what is happening is over happening. there. So, yeah. Um, just to finish up, can I ask you just what gets you up? You shared about uh, servant – having that servant heart, serving the nation. Uh, obviously, the, the the climate change mantra that's coming is a huge threat to all of our nations. Uh, what kind of gets you up in the morning? And you kind of, I'm sure there are times when you think, is this worth it? This is just too much of hassle. And yet every day. So what kind of drives you uh, personally to keep serving the people in the Senate? Um, I'd love to set people free. Uh, I remember when I was a mine manager, when, when I was a, a coal-faced miner, I thought, this bloody management is half the problem. The union hierarchy, union bosses were the other half of the problem at, at many mines. Um, and so when I was a mine manager, I, even though I was the boss and had supposedly and, and had 550 people working for me in the traditional language, I never said that they were working for me. My job was always to help them get coal out of the ground and get it out safely. So I never saw 550 people working for me. I was serving 550 people. Um, That didn't mean that I let them run the show. I was responsible, so that means I ran it. But I would involve them a lot and listen to them a lot because I've recognised from very, very uh, young age that people are incredibly talented. And the thing that gets to me is, to, is how much the globalist predators, the parasitic globalist predators, uh, Black Rocks, Vanguards, the United States administration are suppressing people. The, the anti-human um, theme, the anti-human, the, the belief that humans are a pest, the, the belief that humans have to be controlled, I have never seen that. I've seen, so wherever I've gone on the mine site, I've gone in there and I've seen people who just don't give a damn because the previous manager lied or the previous manager was incompetent. Or, and you, you, you look at them and, and 
they won't take responsibility, but you start giving them because responsibility meant, meant um, punishment. And so you start giving them authority to do things and say, uh, you know, what would you do about it? Uh, or you put the responsibility back on them. At first they run from it because they've never had responsibility. Then they love it and they're so free. And I can remember walking out of one mine uh, one late one evening, uh, this is back in 1980s, late 80s, thinking, why am I so happy? What, what, am I, what am I feeling good about? And I looked, turned around as I was walking away from the mine and, and I saw huge piles of coal and I thought, well, it's record coal production, but that's not what's making me happy. Safety figures are much, much better. That's not what's making It's the fact that we're setting people free. And when I arrived at that mine site, the evening shift who was never in touch with the, 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 um, the main mine management they would always have a stop work meeting literally every night because they were so pissed off with what was going on. And and what I realised was evening shift, came to work, went underground, came up, went home. And that was – and and we were having record production because the people were free. Now, we also brought discipline in, so it's very important to have that discipline because you can't let everything go go to hell. You've got to have discipline for those very, very small minority of people who won't who aren't – can't provide their own self-discipline. So it's that sense of freedom. I can see our country had 120 years ago was the number one in terms of income per capita in the world. We had a tiny population of 5 million. We built a lot of the infrastructure we now depend on with those 5 million people. Now we're going backwards and our people are getting choked. Um, and it wasn't just with COVID, it's before COVID because we're working for the globalist predators. So what I would like to see is, is, is um, Australians set free again because, you know, we're wonderfully talented people uh, and all we need to do is, is set these people free. If we got the government out of, the, out of people's lives, we would have such a, such a marvellous country again. 100%. Um, Senator Malcolm Roberts, thank you so much for joining us today and letting us know how you and Pauline are being a thorn in the side in the Senate to the system. I love it. So thank you so much for sharing with us today. Thank you very much. You're, you're welcome. Uh, and thank you very much for the invitation. Happy to chat with you, Peter. I've enjoyed it. If you like what we do, sign up to our mailing list. Donate, share, and subscribe to our many platforms at heartsofvoke.org. Thank you for listening.